So, Mary, we're both historians, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking a lot this week about really important slogans and expressions that people have had throughout history. You know, we think back to the 19th century first with, am I not a man and a brother, you know, which was a call to end enslavement. And then aren't I a woman from Sojourner Truth? You know, Martin Luther King talked about having a dream. Others saying we shall overcome. And now we have something else in the canon. I'm nervous. What I mean, what what's something that a woman really wants to hear when she's fighting for her rights and or any other marginalized person? Like, what's something that's really helpful to say to them? You know, I would have said, look what you made me do, but I'm not into like domestic violence rhetoric. So instead, I'm going to say, like, I would really want to hear you need to calm down. I think it's really helpful. I think it's the exact thing that people who are fighting against injustice, that's what they need to hear. I mean, especially during Pride Month. Am I right? Especially. Welcome, everyone, to the next episode of American Girls, the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. On this episode, we'll be talking about Josefina Learns a Lesson with the implicit question, will we? That remains to be seen. I'm Mary. And I am Allison. Allison, what a two-week period we have had. I don't even know where to start. You know, I think we can start with a person who probably has some lessons to learn herself. And I'll just say like this cycle that we're both on of navigating the universe, we're learning lessons all the time. And we're very much a proponent of supporting women who support other women But I have to say something happened this week that was passed off as both a solidarity move with the queer community and then a move of friendship. And that move was done by Taylor Swift hugging Katy Perry dressed as a hamburger and French fries. You know what? I refuse to let anybody disrespect a food group that is basically the bedrock of my personal food pyramid. It's not okay. It's not okay. I don't know what industries are going to come back with maybe some backlash against this. I do think people are rightfully questioning whether this was the messaging necessary or appropriate in the 50th anniversary week of Stonewall. I mean, as Ira Madison III said on Twitter, Taylor Swift threw the first brick at Stonewall, right? I mean, I'd have to check my history books, but... He said that's true, and I I have to believe him. I just need to say that I am glad, before we start talking about this video, I'm glad at least that Taylor stayed away from iconography around iced coffee, which is the preferred food item of the queer community. And if you don't understand that, like, please jump on gay Twitter, do some Googling, search yourself. I don't have time for this. I will just say this is important to me or came home to me because I was in Canada last week, as you know, Allison. I I mean, to say that I know is to really underplay the extent to which I was constantly spiraling out of control and telling anyone who would listen that my best friend was in Canada. And people would say, wow, that's really great. Is she traveling? Is she doing this? And I would say, stop. Yeah. She's away. You know, now that I put the pieces together, you go away. I get a haircut that's not working out for me. (laughs) It's always I was not going to bring up the haircut. I was not going to bring up the haircut. Look, that person who goes unnamed only because you won't tell me their name. I don't know. They're dead to me. Oh my God, really? 
this is part of my issue. I don't form close relationships with people who do that kind of service anymore. And so I only have myself to blame. Oh, no. I find out their name and I make them tell me a personal detail from their life. So then it's like, I'm invested. I've just invested in you. And now I need you to invest in me. Hair is sacred and extremely personal. And I, I hate to say that out loud looking at you because I know that you're unhappy with this haircut, even though I think you look great always. Thank you. But it's we've both been going through it. You got a haircut that wasn't maybe your best, according to you. And I was in Canada. Let me just say, for our Canadian listeners, I was in Victoria, Canada, which is a beautiful place. And Canadians are, as advertised, the nicest people probably I've ever met. But there was what I would consider a hate crime committed against me by At a Tim by a man named Tim Horton. Okay, let me set the scene for you really quick. My first flight left at 6 a.m. Left at 6 a.m. I am not a morning person. I land in Toronto. I've never been to Canada before. I'm like, wow, this is beautiful. Great. An airport. Whatever. I'm barely awake right now. I take myself to Tim Hortons. On their menu, it says iced coffee. Allison, you've already heard this 50 times. I say... I'll never tire. I'll never tire Thank you. I mean, some people have Macbeth. I have this. I literally, I'm like gesturing towards the sign. I said, good morning. I would like an iced coffee. The woman responds to me, we don't do that here. And at this point, I'm like, look, I know I'm half asleep. Maybe I'm just out of it. So I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry. I just, there's a sign here. It says iced coffee. And she was basically like, the sign is a fantasy. It's not real. And it's like, you know what, ma'am? It's June. It's Pride Month. I'm a queer woman standing in front of you. I've just asked basically for my national anthem in the form of a drink. And you're telling me it doesn't exist. Like, stop denying my personhood enough. I'm like slamming my fist on my desk right now. I know. It didn't get better from there for me in terms of coffee. It just didn't. You were in an absolutely beautiful location. You were learning a skill that, according to everyone on the internet, women constantly need to be learning, which is coding. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So like we fed into that STEM machine fantasy. We did. But also we were both hysterical for most of the week because my phone service was really terrible and we could not really stay in touch, which is always a source of concern. I remember even when you got married and were on your honeymoon, I was like, but what about me? Like, (laughs) how are we staying in touch? Yeah. So we got through it. I returned home, triumphantly drank iced coffee fine. But then it's like, I'm barely back in the States. I'm barely like going about my life, getting it together. This music video drops. And we have had calls from people to be like, we need your thoughts on this. And maybe I'll regret that in a moment. But here we are. Allison, take it away. I I knew it was coming, right? We heard about it on Twitter. We knew that the music was here. We knew that it was coming. And over the course of the weekend, I was finishing research and actually presenting a public history program on local LGBTQ plus history. And the whole time I thought, wow, I just wish there was an American voice that could give me the exact framework. And then she tells people to calm down. And I understand that people want to or find something useful in giving her a really long leash with always kind of assuming that she's doing something subversive and interesting. But I also think sometimes like an inflatable pool toy is just an inflatable pool toy. 
Right. And the thing is, we've been down this road with her before. When she put out Look What You Made Me Do, there was many a think piece that basically said, look, Taylor, despite whatever you intended here, Look What You Made Me Do is really charged language in domestic violence histories and all kinds of really loaded ways. So maybe this isn't the empowering phrase that you thought it was. Then here we are again with You Need to Calm Down with her trying to co-opt a phrase used against mostly women and marginalized communities to minimize real hurt inflicted online or in person. And once again, it's like, ma'am, I don't. So I just said to you off here, every time Taylor Swift comes up, I feel like I have to do a personal audit to make sure that I'm not losing it because I don't want to be that kind of person that attacks other women and their creative work, especially But there's something about Taylor that is so offensive to me as a calculating capitalist. Like, basically, I can't be critical of Justin Bieber doing something like this because he's not smart enough. Justin Timberlake, not remotely smart enough. We'll get to his wife in a moment. But when I watched this video, it was so offensive to me because I just tried to imagine what the phone call was like from Taylor to any of the queer people who appeared in this video. How was it not pure tokenism. How did she hide that language? I mean, I'm imagining she calls up Ellen and says, what? Ellen, I really love you. Um, I'm having a group of people in my music video. Um, There's something that they all have in common that I would love to exploit. I mean, celebrate. This is an aside and it doesn't matter, but it did to me. Ellen is having tattooed on her arm, Cruel Summer which is perhaps the best known song by a little band called Bananarama. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Taylor, don't you effing dare pervert Bananarama's legacy. I've had enough. So I think we both have different things that are like specific touchstones, but something that we have bonded over previously was there was an epic where Taylor Swift really wanted to tell everyone that she had friends Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a way for her to take back a narrative that she was dating too much, which is a totally inappropriate and misogynist read of her life. She's allowed to date whoever she wants, whenever, um, especially Jonas Brothers Okay, at all. Sure. But she really kind of used friendship as a personality trait and as a kind of way to launch her career where famous friends would come out behind her. And Lena Dunham, who herself is a lightning rod, basically talked about how it was being used like Mm -hmm. it was being used to come up on a stage to represent something where it was like I have friends who are not normative in the sense of what models and people who hang out with celebrities look like so she's kind of used friendship before in this very tokenistic way and with this one I just can't imagine what that set was like I I can't. Like, I mean, I respect a lot of the people who appeared in that video. And I really do support visions of inclusion because, you know, um, as the famous saying goes, you can't be what you can't see. So any added representation of queer people in popular culture is almost always something I want to support. But when it is done at the behest of a very straight person who is very clearly using Um, queer culture to support her own products. It's so disgusting to me that I can't be any part of it. So I actually felt really sad when I kept recognizing people in the video, like, why are you doing this? Like, to me, it's an entirely different situation. If Taylor Swift was queer, I don't think I would be this critical at all. 
even if she was purely like trying to sell products and whatever, I'd be like, okay, well, at least this is her community. Like allyship in this form is gross to me because it feels very selective. As you're saying, she tried on friend friendship as her marketing campaign. She tried on feminism with 1989, which is by the way, an album I really like, Mm -hmm. but with this, it just felt like way over the top. The song's not even good just to go there for a second. The song's not interesting. It's there's no new colors on her in this, what looks like her new album. Also, it's called Lover, which ugh, just saying that word made me want to throw up in my mouth. Like, I don't want to hear this. And it's like, why are you at, like, I just can't. Like, why are you at, like, a major site of queer history performing Shake It Off? I mean, to some degree, if we had a sense that that was what the people wanted, that's legitimate, right? I guess. But I don't think that we have that sense. I want to share kind of a contrast. You know that this is one of my favorite passages from a book. Sarah Kenzier, who is a really important intellectual on Twitter, she has this whole kind of passage that's about complaining that I love as a kind of counter to what we're hearing with this song. And again, whether that's her intention or not, it is still another thing that's put out into the culture that tells women to calm down. So in her book, The View from Flyover Country, she says, the surest way to keep a problem from being solved is to deny that problem exists. Telling people not to complain is a way of keeping social issues from being addressed. It trivializes the grievances of the vulnerable, making the burden feel like burdens. Telling people not to complain is an act of power, a way of asserting that one's position is more important than another one's pain. People who say stop complaining always have the right to stop listening, but those who complain have often been denied the right to speak. Mm-hmm. 1,000%. And I just couldn't help but think about a lot of um, things in queer culture. I wish people had checked, were checking out instead of this and maybe have already checked out that we might want to recommend um, because it seems like Taylor is trying on queerness in this music video. Um, she's putting on very, there's just a stunning lack of imagination to this concept. And I don't know if it was hers or her co-director or whoever. I don't understand why she burns her own house down. She loves that though. Yeah. But it's like, why, why are you like, uh, you burned your own camper down? Like I, uh, I can't follow this, but it's like, there's way over the top clothing and whatnot. It is so disingenuous for her to try on queerness because she doesn't have to worry about fitting in in a queer world. She's in the majority. She doesn't have to perform every day of her life to fit into a culture that has very little space for her. And the way that queer folks, um, particularly queer folks of color, people from marginalized um, populations or situations, have to every day. And there's a really amazing documentary from 1990 called Paris is Burning. And it is absolutely... Something it's on Netflix. You can check it out quite easily. It is amazing. I've seen it many times, and it follows um, kind of the ball culture in the late '80s, early '90s in New York, in which mainly people of color, um, trans folks, were um, performing or competing in ball culture that is now immortalized or imagined in the series Pose that may- many of you or some of you might have seen. But they announced categories and folks would compete dressing or trying to present themselves in a performance of those categories. The categories were always a from straight culture, whether it was like business wear or, 
you know, members of the military and people would have to try to pretend or pose as members of those sometimes like straight categories. So I think for me, it was somewhat offensive that Taylor is attempting to pose or like category, you know, queer culture. Mm -hmm. And she invites actual queer people to pose or perform what is for them their reality. And for them, it's a celebration. And for her, she thinks it is too. But because of that misdirected performance, I guess it it just struck me as really false in a way that I kind of couldn't handle. And I want to kind of bring this into conversation briefly with another thing that I'm actually really loving in terms of queer pop culture. And that's something we both have really loved, what you called Queer Downton Abbey, and that's Gentleman Jack. Of course. Which just concluded its first season. Now, a bunch of people actually reached out to me and messaged me about the season finale, which was really cool. I love hearing from folks. And I absolutely loved it. I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. I thought it was great. The difference to me between that and what Taylor Swift is doing is that one, Ann Lister is by no means apologizing at any point for being a purely capitalist person. She's trying to get her coal mines together. She's trying to make cash. She's floating the deed to Shibden Hall to finance all of this. She is not concerned really and, and except as a kind of like paternalistic way about the welfare of her employees or what it will mean to start a coal mine. She's trying to get money. Taylor Swift also trying to get money, but pretending that that's not what she's doing. And that pretense is what totally offends me. Don't you think, though, that Ann Lister would have loved that pool scene? (laughs) I think she would have been checking ladies out in the pool scene. No question. True, true, true. I don't think she would appreciate the music. No, I think she would find it all very gross. I'm reading her diary right now, actually, and she calls everything extremely vulgar. And everyone she meets, she's like, they're gross, they're vulgar. They say things that are completely inappropriate. She was actually very religious and found many things offensive. I'm not going to lie to you. I call things vulgar all the time. And I sometimes have like the pretenses and rigidity of a woman from the early 19th century. Yes, you're you're a lady from another century, and I totally respect that. Just like Josefina. That is true. Now, briefly before we get to Josefina, I just want to call out and put on blast someone who is perhaps trying to put us all on track to have this live in the same medical conditions as Josefina, and that's Jessica Biel. Please sis, cease and desist. You are not our American girl of the week or month or year. No, it's really unfortunate. And I think what's striking is when we think about the worlds of both Felicity and Josefina. So admittedly, vaccines were controversial in 18th century Boston. That is true. But by the time of Josefina's period in urban industrial contexts, mostly on the East Coast of the United States, people actually were widely vaccinated in certain communities. Mm -hmm. And that's 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. And it's just shocking to me. I mean, there's a lot about 2019 that's shocking to me. But I can't believe that we are actually creating scenarios in which children are getting measles in 2019. There was no earthly reason for that. Polio outbreaks. what What in the world are people thinking? She needs to go hang out at Off Fudge or whatever the heck that restaurant is that she's funding and just stop. I think she was doing really well when she was trying to advertise leggings. I liked that a lot. I think that was a really good move for her. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not I'm not sure. I think 
I think there's something interesting about there are clearly celebrities that have opinions that I think they know are controversial that they keep to themselves. And then there are people who are so clearly not being managed well enough to be told to keep that quiet. Mm -hmm. Because I actually don't – she doesn't strike me as a person unlike other people who have like a full agenda. Like she clearly thinks it's what's right for her family And she's not really out there advocating, but she also understands that when she talks about it that publicly, it's doing the same thing. Right. And the minute that so she appeared at a speech given by Robert Kennedy Jr., who's become an outspoken advocate against vaccination. And the minute, though, that she was in his office and took a photo with him or allowed his staff member to take a photo of them together, she had to know that that photo was going to go on his social media and become like a a visual support of his ideology. So there's a lot of different ways that we vote. We vote, you know, in the voting booth, but but we also vote with our words, with, um, you know, where we choose to spend time, where we donate and, you know, who you appear in public with. Uh, by choice. It's not like she ran into him. She made a concerted effort to go to his public event and support specifically his work in this area. So I I thought better of her. I mean, I guess I just thought somehow she had been tricked into being with Justin Timberlake. I, I can't understand it, but I'm just going to say, please vaccinate your children. I think that's I think that's brave. I think that's wise. And I think Josefina would agree. Thank you. And speaking of our girl Josefina, let's get into the book. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. do it. So this is the second book and it's still set in 1824. We're now just a little bit after the summer we learn in the book. Should I go ahead with the publisher's summary? Go for it. So in book two, Tia Dolores is back. It's like no time has elapsed at all. And this is what we learn from Valerie Tripp herself. When Tia Dolores returns to the Montoya's Rancho, Josefina is delighted. But soon after she arrives, a flash flood kills hundreds of the family sheep. Tia Dolores suggests that the Montoyas could recover from this terrible loss by starting a weaving business, something Mama would never have done. But Papa likes the idea, and Josefina learns to weave. Then Tia Dolores decides to teach the girls how to read. Mama didn't read, but Josefina is excited to learn. Then she begins to worry. Will all these changes make the girls forget Mama? The answer to Josefina's question comes in an unexpected way and teaches her an important lesson about love. Okay. So I'll just add, because we like to do our little addendum, 
a central piece of this book is Tia Dolores's scheme that they essentially use sheep for sheep. And what that means is they take wool and they weave it into blankets that they're going to use to get more sheep back to really restore their flock. And a central drama for Josefina in all of this is she has a tremendously ungrateful set of sisters who don't really appreciate that Dolores is here keeping the family solvent that she's able to read. And they kind of frame everything around both not wanting to work and not wanting things to change. Like they're still really mourning the loss of their mother. Um, The father is mysteriously quiet about the fact that his sister-in-law has just moved in and taken over a lot of the business. And I'll say as one last thing, the covers of these books are a total lie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Josefina remains both illiterate and unable to write at the end of this book so don't believe the cover the cover is very aspirational yes so far as i can tell now i want to get into what our girl val has done in this book because there's a lot happening here so i had to arrange my time differently this week normally i like to read right before we record because i like to live on the edge but this week it it wasn't in the cards so i i took some notes here and the thing that really struck me was how much of like God stuff is in this book. This is actually a very religious book, which I think is accurate to the time and to this family that there's a lot in this book about their world and how they understand themselves within it. So there's a lot of stuff about religion and being grateful and seeing yourself in a bigger kind of cosmology with God, but also of Josefina and Tia Dolores and Francisca and Teresita, who we'll get to in a little while, and where they fit into this household. Um, What is that? What is their place in this world? Sorry, you're asking a really heady question, but can I just pivot to something quick? Please do. Like after all this talk of goats, did the goats just survive the flood? Or they're they're closer to the house? They're fine. We have to trust that Floricita, as in my mind, the main character of this series... Was taken indoors. Now, I brought this up last week, and I need to call us back to this again. And that's that at the very beginning of the book, there's a really bad storm. And we're told that the crop has already been taken in. We're kind of like in medias rest because Tia Dolores has been there a while or like a month, I think, a couple weeks. And dad is basically like, oh, I got to go see my older sister. Her roof's in a really bad way. And it's kind of like, why, again, why does this sister not live in the rancho, Allison? I'm so confused by who lives there and who doesn't. And I'm also confused about, like, on the one hand, this family insisting that they're really tight and then constantly, like, scattering to the four winds. It's a, it's really weird. And there's just, there's so much like the dad pieces out in the middle of the night to go check on his sister's roof. And then they hear church bells and they all scatter to help like pull in the kitchen garden. So it's not all ruined. And then the dad comes back in the morning and is like, well, I was able to save a roof, but you know, lots been destroyed and the villagers all lost their crops. And it's like, okay, your sister's roof was barely saved. You left her there. Yeah. And she's considerably older for some reason. I mean, I know last week I was kind of like floating a theory, which I still believe is true, that book one is the piano and Tia Dolores did kill her aunt. And I think we have even more evidence in book two. I'm just going to say that, Allison. 
But now I'm kind of like, are these two like match made in heaven? Because the dad is like, well, I have a contract or insurance policy out on my older sister. Allison's losing it. Allison, seriously, think about this. What is the history of insurance in independent Mexico in 1824? Because this man is basically like, I look, they could go find his sister and she's a mummy in a month. You know what I'm saying? Like he walks in and he's like, hey, I'm here to just make sure you're safe in the storm. And she basically wakes up and is like, what the hell are you doing? Like, it's raining. I'm fine. I'm an independent woman because I have to be because you never like invited me to live with you, even when you were widowed and needed a mentors for your daughters. You have to find Tia Dolores in Mexico City. That doesn't even make sense. And he's like, hey, look, I'm here to take care of, I'm here now. Like, can we please put our baggage to the side? And then he, there's some kind of scuffle. She passes, not her choosing. He leaves her there. She becomes a mummy. And I don't know where that's going to land, but I just, I don't feel great about where that plot line is going. I think we're at book two. And conservatively, our body count is at two and a half. Yep. Well, I'm going to say three because we don't know where grandma's at. Again, putting an APB on grandma. So I'm going to say three and a half. Thank you. It could actually be four because we have Tia Dolores in the ground. We have the sister, probably a mommy. Grandpa and grandma. Tia Dolores is fine. No, I'm sorry. Tia Dolores' aunt. She's in the ground. Of course. Yeah. Pop's sister. She's a mommy. Now, Grandpa and Grandma, I am concerned about them. Grandpa was quite alive in book one, and then Tia Dolores went to stay with them for a month. And I think we all know what happens when Tia Dolores decides to take care of you. That's all it takes. It's all it takes. And she came back. And by the way, we get a description of her that her cheeks are pinker. She's not tired anymore. She's looking healthier than she's ever been. Do you know what she really strikes me as? She really strikes me as a poisoner. I could see that for her. Do you know why? Because I I don't see her having the upper body strength or really the stamina to carry off something more complex and physical. And she's really, as we learned throughout this book, she's a delegator. She's really good at taking on a leadership role. So I don't see her being that hands-on in the murders. And I feel like grandpa would have taught her something that would be hard to trace. Right. But she's also like, first of all, we learn she ha- she brings her fold up writing desk with her to the rancho. Later in the book, when she's trying to bond with Josefina, who clearly misses her mother, and that's an, we'll get to that. But the, the grief running through these books is very real and very sad. And she basically wants to show her a book that she's made of kind of remembrances of her mother, her deceased mother. And it's hidden away in a secret compartment. And my question is, what else is in that secret compartment? What is it for? And also, she's surrounded herself with people who can't read or write. The dad can sign his name with a flourish. We learned that. And that's like his way of peacocking to get ladies interested in him. Like, look how fancy I can sign my name. We learned that was his party trick that wooed Josefina's mother. Which honestly, like, hey, girl, hold out for hold out for more for yourself. But can I say this? Literally no one is who they say they are because we're given this stunning bombshell line one 
Maria Josefina Montoya, said Tia Dolores happily. How beautiful you look. Did we know that we were using a middle name as a first name prior to this? I I was somewhat surprised by that, but I also think that's a cultural thing. And I think it's it didn't shock me too much because basically everyone in my family is named Mary. Mary something. Like I'm Mary Margaret. My aunt's Rosemary. I have another aunt, Mary Ellen. I have another cousin, Mary Kate, who listens to the show. Hey, girl. Um, my grandmother was Mary Margaret, you know, there's a lot of Mary. So it's like, I actually go by Mimi and my family. So, I mean, to me, it's like, okay, that's a very cultural thing, but you are correct that it is a deception and it's starting us off from a weird place. So again, it's like, what's happening? I do think she's going to be the one that changes the family narrative. Like she's going to pull a T-Swift and say like, this is a narrative I want to be excluded from. And she's going to expose them all. Or she kills Tia Dolores and says, look what you made me do. Fascinating. I'm just saying. Her her wildest dreams. (laughs) Her wildest dreams. Indeed. I think it's also strange. So this book is fully immersed in a world of women. And one of the opening scenes is Tia Dolores with the four sisters sewing dresses after the resolution of the storm. And they're sewing from the book that she presented to them in the last book, which I flagged again because none of them can read. And they said that to her. They were like, this is cool. Thanks for this book of patterns with detailed descriptions of how to make these dresses. And maybe she's providing that instruction in person now. But it's like, again, none of them can read. And they're like, well, we're using this book. Everything's fine. They can't read it. So like that, I mean, Valerie Tripp, like, please help us out with your history of literacy. What is happening here? There, There's also a conspicuously absent role of the Bible in this. And I understand that within Catholic traditions, there's there's different emphases on literacy than in a Protestant tradition where it's important that you be able to read. But it is kind of striking that she comes to town, has a secret desk, has a piano, nary a Bible in sight. Yeah, that is a bit weird, especially as a record keeping mechanism, because we'll get into this. But part of what's interesting about the end of this book is that Tia Dolores presents Josefina with a book that she herself has created of memories of her her now deceased sister to make sure that she's fresh in her mind. And that makes me think a lot about how we create archives of people in our lives, even our, our lives themselves. How do you create a record of young girls' lives in Mexico in this period if there's an absence of literacy and if in this particular household, you don't even have the bare bones artifacts that families might use to record even birth dates, marriage dates, basic family records. Well, that's where I think something that is striking about the cover is behind Josefina is a really beautiful wool tapestry or a wool blanket. And, you know, something I heard once that really helped me think differently about art and records was this notion that certain cultures hang art on the walls and certain cultures reserve art for the floor. So different kinds of, for example, like Turkish traditions of women working on art in the form of carpets versus like, say, a woman painter of the Renaissance. And to think of what's hanging behind her as kind of a record of her life, like she learns how to weave over the course of this book and she compares her aunt to a bright red piece of wool, which is like its own thing because Trip can't help herself from making women weird objects. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, to think of that as a kind of record of her life. And if you were to kind of pair up a historical record with this period, you might see 
you know, if there was actually a flood in this precise time and then pairing that with the blankets, like that would tell a story like, oh, this family shifted what they were doing probably for this reason. And this is a skill that this person learned and integrated her personality into. In a way, I think it's kind of a tell then from Trip about her own kind of feelings on colonialism that she privileges learning to reading and write over the very expressive skills that Teresita has to make these blankets that tell very foundational stories of her culture. Can we, so we need to talk about Teresita because she is like, no pun intended, just kind of woven into this story. And we've talked about how like in all seriousness, there's a lot of like grief and trauma haunting this book. So Teresita is tasked with teaching Josefina how to weave and she talks about how she traveled with Tia Dolores and she says before that I was a servant in your abuelito's house in Santa Fe but when I was a little girl I lived with my people the Navajos and then we get a very little bit more about her story Um, she talks about how they lived in the mountains and deserts far to the west did you ever see your mama again she asked Teresita no did you miss her? See, si, said Teresita. You and I are alike in that way, aren't we? We both lost our mamas at a young age. So Josefina is nodding, but they've also kind of slipped into here that the mother who taught Teresita how to weave, um, she's not with her because, quote, I was captured by enemies of the Navajos when I was about your age and taken from my family. Right. So like, Let's let's put a timeline together. She's a full-on captive that was probably sold to grandpa. Correct. So what are we to do with that? And what is the scent what is their relationship between Teresita and this family? Like Tia Dolores has absolutely no problem bossing Teresita around is like, you will teach Josefina how to weave. Thanks, and then leaves. Is Teresita an enslaved person? Is she a servant? And what is her form of compensation? What is the nature of her life? And as you're pointing us to, she's lived through major trauma, which Valerie Tripp breezes right through. And in a way, it's almost like as readers, we are meant to respond as Josefina responds. And as Teresa's Teresita suggests that we respond, which is to see the commonalities between us and to erase or blow right past the very huge differences in their experiences. Josefina, despite the fact that she's living without a mother and is very sad, she's a person of incredible privilege compared to Teresita. But we don't, we're not encouraged to sympathize with her in any way. She's basically there to carry a skill and tell a story that Josefina can then take and make her own. So by that same line of reasoning, we learn that, and they're using the word servants, the servants who are working in the kitchen are Carmen and Miguel, and they are together, right? Mm-hmm. But so, like, is there a triangulation here? Like, are all of these people linked, or was Teresita a kind of inheritance for Tia Dolores? I would love to know. I have absolutely no idea. All I noted, too, is that when they keep talking about Teresita, they keep seeing wrinkling, the word wrinkling. Like, she would smile oh. and her eyes would wrinkle, And it was like this weird, creepy ageism about Teresita that was like she's supposed to be like in in books with people of color. Sometimes there's this weird 
mythologizing of people of color that's incredibly condescending where they become by the way like we're talking about them like they're bearers of incredible wisdom but really we're kind of tokenizing them as such so that's on page 30 yes said Teresita wrinkling up her eyes in a smile and every I feel like she's referred to this way a bunch of different times that's just the time I wrote down but the kind of tokenizing of Teresita is like this older, wise Native American woman who's meant to like use the trauma of her own life to help Josefina deal with her own without really allowing Teresita space to kind of talk about her own feelings about any of that. It's just sort of like you don't get the privilege of processing anything that's happened to you. That's for Josefina, not you. It's also and it's interesting that you bring up like how writing ends up getting privileged at the end because Josefina is remembering things her mother would say and sing to them. And Tia Dolores kind of swoops in and says, like, don't worry about it. I wrote it all down. Like, I've recorded it. And yet while she's learning how to weave with Teresita, there's a scene where Teresita explains that her people that she came from really thought of creation in terms of all of these metaphors, but also literally like the movement of a sunbeam the way that you move thread back and forth while you're weaving. And she's kind of getting at these beautiful oral histories that are part of her tradition and her culture. And then Josefina is trying to parrot and remember her mother's words. And her aunt's like, no, we need to write it down. Yeah, which makes me think Tia Dolores has Winston Churchill vibes in the sense of once Winston Churchill famously said, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. And Tia Dolores clearly is up to something with her folding desk. And I have a wonder if she's putting make putting a second book together that's basically like her wedding album for a relationship that hasn't technically even started yet. Where she's like, that. oh, the girls just fell in love with me before Papa. Like they said all of these different things to me. And even my sister before she died, like wrote to me or dictated a letter to me saying if something should happen to her, I should marry her husband, like creating like a false narrative. But like, that's how history works. So much of memory is rehearsed. And so much of history is contested and negotiated. There's no like singular truth. There's just versions of stories that people write down and, and to me negotiate. But I think the version of the mom that we're getting in this book through the memories of her daughters is Auntie Dolores is somewhat weird. Speaking of things getting written down, you know, of these expressions. Um, Josefina quotes one very early in the book, one of these expressions that the mom was famous for in their family. And it's used kind of to check my favorite character in this book. So I do want to share it. And it's on page two. They're all sitting together sewing dresses, and basically, um, Francisca is having none of it. She has no patience for this. And Josefina at one point says, well, Tia Dolores is sort of warning them to kind of take it seriously and to be careful. And Josefina says, Mama used to say, if you make your thread too long, the devil will catch on to the end of it. And I'm like, seriously, we're talking about the devil on page two? <laughs> you know, I don't need this around. they're not and I'm sorry but this is like such Catholic vibes as someone raised Catholic who's like deep in it first of all talking about the saints which also come up on page 26 got my quotes going the saints cry over lost time I think the saints have bigger fish to fry than if you're like not you're not together on your schedule on a particular day I also feel like that's like a bizarre 
internalization of capitalist ethic. Yes. This whole book is about work and it's about what work is for and who it's for. So there's some, basically, there's this idea that work is tedious. Like Francisco wants absolutely nothing to do with it and hates every form of labor that she's subjected to in this book. But there's also this idea that work is spiritual. Like for Teresita, it's a it's a way of literally reenacting and remembering the history of her people and her culture. But there's also a lot of like work, I'm putting that in quotes in this book, to justify the rules of work and who's it's who it's for. Like Tia Dolores sort of like projects one thing, like she's hyper efficient. Is she a saint? Is she a girl boss? Like really hard to say at this point. That that's also why I love the scene where after the flood, there's there's a line that they didn't even remember that she was there. So Tia Dolores interjects when the father is talking about what he's going to do. And he says that he'll have to get mules so that they can increase the flock. And Tia Dolores says, perhaps not. She'd been so quiet, they'd almost forgotten she was there. And it's like, Val, you kind of have to pick a lane with this because supposedly she's changing everything, but now we don't even notice her. It's kind of like Sound of Music vibes. Like either she comes in and makes kids clothes from the drapes or she's like literally blends into the drapes herself. Like you have to choose. Well, and Francisca is in some ways a voice of reason because things were fine prior to her arrival and now there's a lot more tasks. But then Francisca kind of does us dirty where she says, I don't see the need for learning to read and write. That's true. But I do just want to say I I am in her corner and it's because there's a revelation about something that she's done that I think is so stunning that... I just like, I wish I could do this in my own life. Like, it's not really the time for me to do this in my life, but in years past, we learned that she's been proposed to and that she wanted to say no. But Francisca? Yes. Turn to page 47. Turn your oh, hymnals to page 47. Because she's been like out dancing. That's why her stitches need to be good. Yeah. Like, yeah. She basically says, like, young men will want to marry you. Like, Tia Dolores is trying to convince Francisca that she should want to learn to read and write. And she basically says, like, young men are going to write to your dad to propose to you. Won't you want to read those letters? And Francisca's like, girl, please. And basically says, quote, I won't read them. And I'll reply to any marriage proposal by handing the young man the squash. That's true, said Clara. She's already done it. In fact, a young man had already proposed to Francisca. She had indeed followed the old custom of giving him a squash to let him know she was not interested in marrying him. Wow. What in the world is this practice? Point one. Why did it go away? Why did it go away? And why can't we use it for other things? Like if you're at work and somebody comes up to you and starts a conversation you have absolutely no interest in, instead of having to feign interest, I would just love to hand someone something that I'm not attached to that I don't want back. Like um, here's a like grab bag of paper clips. I'm not interested. Like we're done here. You know what I'm saying? And what a pun because you're squashing the conversation. Are you not? I think so. It's kind of like a leave the gun, take the cannoli moment. Like, love that. I'm just saying. It's, it's, you know, and you know, when I was scared of flying on the flight back from Canada, I did start watching The Sopranos to make myself feel safe. Anyway, I'm rewatching 30 Rock. Okay. So you're in the midst of that. I am. Some of it's too close to home, but that's another episode. <laughs> um, some people when we were in grad school did try to tell us which one of us was Amy Poehler and which one of us was Tina Fey. Yeah. 
It's tough. It is tough. They both bring really different things. Um, different energies. Um, but Francisca, to get back to her for a second, is the Joe March of this book. And it does make me think that Josefina is Beth. And we are getting their entire family history from Beth's perspective. And I'm just going to say this. I'm not really interested in fanfic of Little Women from Beth's perspective. I am. I'm 100% not. I don't care. Here's the thing. I think Josefina, when we look at her on a spectrum with Felicity on some other end, Felicity only did for herself, was selfish, right? In a lot of ways, was oblivious, had to have a near-death parental experience to kind of come around. Josefina is living in a really different place and is like shockingly empathetic for a nine-year-old. She's a saint. Like I basically look at Josefina and it's sort of triggering for me in a lot of ways because being raised Catholic, I'm just going to put this out there, to be a woman in Catholicism is tough. If you follow all the rules, it's actually pretty tough because what you're supposed to do is try to emulate the saints, try to emulate Mary, Mother of God, not Mary, co-host of this podcast. And you know, be very self-sacrificing, put everyone else in your life first, practice empathy, you know, practice compassion and put yourself last on the list. And sometimes that can have not great, not great effects in your life. And I think for Josefina, it's if you try to set yourself up to be a saint, you're never going to get there. And you're only going to feel a lot of Catholic guilt about that. I'm not speaking from experience. You know, so I feel for Josefina, like, I wish she had more fun. Like, the scene when they go outside the rancho, the four of them, with Miguel, and basically Francisco starts to sound the alarm about Tia Dolores, and I wish she was like, has anyone heard from Grandma in a while? Anyway, like, Francisco's basically wilding out and is like, this is the best. And also, like, Josefina allows herself to have some fun, and you just have to wonder... Is the thing that is keeping Josefina's volume turned down the fact that she's a young girl who's putting incredible pressure on herself to fit, to play a role in her family, a gendered role in her family, or and or is it because she's dealing with this incredible grief? I think it's both. I think it's an interesting choice because I know that relationships between mothers and daughters are so formative in a lot of the books. They're so important. And Josefina both lacks a best friend and lacks a mother mm-hmm. in these books. It's really hard. And, and it's actually really heartbreaking in this book to see the ways that all of the sisters, most flagrantly in Francisca, but also in Josefina, this feeling that when you lose someone who's so foundational to your life, you don't want anything in your life to change from when that person was still in it. Because then you have to actually face the fact that they're gone and they're not coming back. Like that was a really hard part of this book to read because, you know, like everyone, I've lost people really who are very important to me. And, you know, I remember when my grandmother passed away, Grandma Fluffy, who I've talked about on the show. I mean, this was a person who was foundational to my life. I can't stress that enough. And my car, I drove a Saturn. Shout out to car brand. Steffi. Steffi the Saturn, RIP. I drove that car for a decade. That car basically died and I got the flu on the same day. And this was not long after my grandmother passed. And I was just not a happy person. So my car dies. I have the flu. I have to get a new car. Most people would be happy they're getting a new car, especially if your first car was a Saturn. But I was so sad about it because I just thought, wow, I can't go to her house now and show her my new car. I can't, you know, she will never know this part of my life, this change in my life, as as tedious and small as it seems now in hindsight. There's a Bonnie Raitt song, and yes, I am making a Bonnie Raitt reference, which feels very 90s of me, but I'm going for it. 
And it's one of those songs that if you want to cry in the shower, please put this song on and just go for Mm -hmm. it. And it's called I Don't Want Anything to Change. And Mm. it's about exactly this. It's about, it's talking about a romantic relationship, but there's a line that says, I don't want anything to do with what comes after you. And the whole time I was reading this book, I was actually thinking about that because with Francisca and with Josefina, it's like, there's such a strong vibe of like, I don't want to learn to read and write. I don't want to help learn, like make this weird entrepreneurial business that Tia Dolores is running because my mom's on here and she will not have anything to do with this. Like this is not of her. She would not have, this would not have made sense to her. So I can't have it make sense to me. That was all very smart. So I don't want to take it to a pedestrian place. Please do. But this book is basically full house. Oh God. This is going to get dark. Oh God. It's Aunt Becky. It's it's like Full House. It's like Parent Trap. It's like Sound of Music. There are so many things going on here that are just like really weird. Like if Aunt Becky came in, actually Aunt Becky did do this in a way. Like yeah. she came in and was the co-anchor. She saved Annie Tanner's career, right? Am I misremembering that show? I, I have to assume this show was tanking pre-Aunt Becky. I have to assume. I mean, because it takes it takes a while for her to date Uncle Jesse. That's not an immediate thing. Speaking of dating Uncle Jesse, this is an aside on an aside, but I was flipping through. I was just in Barnes & Noble, and I was flipping through Howard Stern's um, new interview book because there was an interview with Paul McCartney in there and I wanted to read that. But anyway, there was also an interview with Amy Poehler speaking of, and she talks about the fact that apparently they were in a a movie together and he asked her out to dinner and she didn't realize until like midway through the dinner that it was probably a date and she was probably blowing it. Mm. I mean, she like, I guess it's what I'm saying is like, it's very difficult to date uncle Jesse either in real life or on full house. So Aunt Becky did bring that to the table in a convincing way. And I have to believe she saved Danny Tanner's career because I never found him entertaining. Or frankly, the other guy, Uncle Joey. I, You know, honestly, the more I think about it, the parallels are really haunting. Like, I don't feel like we ever got satisfactory explanations for why the mother was dead mm-hmm. or why a woman of Greek descent and Danny Tanner had three blonde children. Like there was just so much that they refused to explain. Or why anyone would voluntarily be friends with Uncle Joey and or a grown adult who is a puppeteer. This is the saddest thing I've ever thought about. He's a puppeteer in the privacy of his own home. Like when he starts that, it's in his basement apartment. Like he's not doing it on the children's show. That comes later. He's not doing it as part of even a community theater group. I would accept that. This man literally is alone in his basement apartment. And he's like, I have 20 minutes to put together here. What am I going to do to fill my time? Woodchuck puppet. And when you think about it, instead of finding like really quality role models for his daughters, he's like, I have this friend who's an underemployed musician and a friend who's an aspirational puppeteer. And he's like, move in. He's like, guys, I think we got it. But that was kind of the the times because also remember Three Men and a Little Lady. Of course. Of course. And there was like vibes of that where Ted Danson was like, I will casually put on 
a lot of makeup and and be a priest in this wedding. I will like do whatever's needed to make the hijinks happen. There was a lot of like single straight men who were weirdly interested in parenting children not their own. To what end, think, none of us can say. I think it's because culturally we didn't have the space like the space was not being made for like two men who were in a relationship to raise a child on television. Right. And also I'm thinking more of TJF, like remember step by step, step by step, day Day by by day. day. Oh my God. Like thinking about T.J. Loris in the step by step world, it's just, God, it's like the parallels are everywhere. I think she could hang because Suzanne Summers on that show was a real hustler. Like she had her own she had the salon. Her studio. Yeah. She did a really good job with that. She had cool friends. But it's I like, just, who is Tia Dolores? Is Tia Dolores like a Jesus figure? Going to put this out there because she's literally like, I can turn sheep into blankets. I can turn water into wine. Now, also, she kind of represents Jesus to me in the ways that like people misinterpret Jesus because she mm-hmm. takes from that. I can take blankets to Native Americans and have that be a good interaction. Yeah. And I think knowing what we do about the history of the transmission of smallpox, Jessica Beale, if you're listening, please pay attention, Jessica Beale. What that is a weird move on Val's part that she was like, you know, I'm gonna imagine this economy to save okay, second question. We're told, so it rains, dad goes to help slash murder his sister, he comes back, Tia Dolores has helped preserve as much of the kitchen garden as she could with Miguel and Carmen and the girls. The next day, he's like, yeah, girls, I got some bad news. The crop is fine. Our property is fine. Our sheep flocks were being moved from their summer to their winter pasture. And the shepherds took a chance. They took a gamble and they took a pass through the mountains that was like basically a risk and it didn't pay off. The sheep are all dead. And that's when Tia Dolores is like, water into wine time. I'm going to turn these sheep into blankets. Why is Valerie Tripp like leaning in? This is the first book in the series in the franchise to take on indigenous characters, correct? Correct. Why is she Unless, why are blanket trades part of this book? I think when she got off the plane, right? Uh-huh. She finished the piano, she dried her eyes. Yeah. She quietly walks out of the terminal. She's preparing for a new life. And one of the first things that she sees is a Navajo blanket store. <sighs> And she's like, that's book two. I, f- and I feel like that could have very easily been turquoise jewelry. She just stumbled into the wrong kiosk, basically. And then her phone rings. And the publisher says, Val, you've got six weeks. We need six books. Wow. Very important. Regardless of the content or appropriateness for the historical period, book two is a school story. We want a girl at a desk and we want her writing. It makes no sense. The cover makes no, no sense. Val's like, you got to pay me more or I'm just going to make something up. I also want to add early in the book, you know, you talk about the devil being invoked. Page two. Page 10, Josefina is having a conversation with her father about trading. And she says, ah, pretty material. See, si, said Papa. I know about the Americanos and the trail they follow. They first came to Santa Fe three years ago. Before that, it was illegal for them to come to New Mexico. He looked thoughtful. I hope that trading with Americanos will be a good thing. (laughs) 
And it's like, Val, you know know what you're doing. You know exactly what you're doing. Well, this is like right after NAFTA. You know what I'm saying? Like, she already knew how this story was going to end. And she put a weird spin on it is all I can say. Yeah. Like the Elian Gonzalez plotline hadn't happened yet. I know that's the other side of the country, but I was trying to think about like what major events were happening with regards to immigration. And it's like, they're all big, even in 1997. They're all big. Like, they're all bad. There's no feel good stories there. I think she called her publisher and said, I really want to write a story about a 1996 Atlanta based Olympian. And they said, Valerie, no, absolutely not. The plane's going the other way. The plane's going the other way and you just have to deal with it. Now, you know that I enjoy, one of the things I enjoy the most about reading up about what other folks have to say is the reviews and your assessment that there is like a Catholic guilt, sorry, Catholic guilt slash like repression vibe. A lot of the reviews have something along these lines. There's also people who like really want folks to know that the mother's death happens off the page, which is a huge disappointment for me. For you or the reviewer? Yeah, I, no, for me. For me. Like, I want to know what happened with the mom. Oh, I thought you wanted a scene where we have to watch her die. Because, like, I don't no. need that. No, I just want more details. Right. Yeah. I think we all want, we we all need some information. So, you know, a man named Austin also chimes in. I'm pretty sure my ex-wife slash domestic partner liked this piece way more than Betty or I. No idea who Betty is. Although I have to admit at my age, I prefer reading a bad American girl book than trying to sit on the floor and play with dolls. And not just because Betty yells at me the whole time that I'm playing wrong either. It's more about the incomprehensible back pain juxtaposed with crushing boredom. And it's like, sir, in the week of Father's Day, why don't you stay off the internet? Yeah. Why don't you please save it for your therapist and or parole officer? (laughs) I've had enough. Honestly, men stay off the internet. Goodbye. Like, Betty, if you're listening, we're here for you now. We We're are sure that here you for you. And, and also, like, he's kind of mirroring Val. I hate to say this because he's privileging reading over play and over material objects. And as I think we've just learned from this book, you shouldn't do that. No. And I'll also say I go back and forth with this because part of me thought it was really beautiful the way that there were moments where Josefina connected with other people over weaving. Um, But weaving is something that's like a lot more a part of my life than I ever thought it would be through a professional context. Weaving is hard and boring. I agree on both counts. Yes. Thank you. I mean, I don't really have anything else to say about this book, except that the body count is rising. And you know, I'm I'm nervous about that as we move into book three. And I also just want to say that there are some really awesome collections of um, indigenous artworks that we will link to and also, um, you know, current artists working. That's what's really cool about Instagram and social media sometimes is that you can connect with or follow really cool artists and see the ways that, you know, this culture is evolving and these practices that Teresita describes in the book are alive and well today. And there's a lot of really cool stuff to check out. We also have to share because we promised that we would. We put out a call for goat girls and you all delivered beyond a wildest dream. Honestly, I want to get that tattoo. I'm not joking. So thank you to Sierra, whose goat tattoo we featured on our Instagram. 
I also want to say thank you to Sydney who wrote to us and I'll just read a little bit of what she shared with us. Um, Sydney told us about reading the Josefina books when she was seven. And she says, I have to say I was completely immersed in her world and enjoyed the goat story. I mean, I thought Floricita was annoying, but when I got to the fourth book, I was like, oh man, now everything makes sense as I realized the purpose Floricita served in the six book arc. Sidebar, we don't know what that purpose is. We don't. Back to Sydney. That being said, I did kind of roll my eyes at her taking up so much space while we're just trying to meet Josefina and her family. Um, I also wanted to share one other email that we got that we really appreciated. And it was a question from a listener named Heather. And she asked us this great question about colonial Mexican history. And she says, I've been enjoying your podcast and I'm so happy you started talking about Josefina. I know little about colonial Mexican history as I grew up in New England, check, and it was never covered, but I have a question. I thought it was great that you brought up Josefina's family being colonizers as it was something that never occurred to me as a child nor as an adult. Do you know at this point in 1824 if her family would have been mixed with natives yet or if the Montoyas were purely Spaniards? And this is a great question, which we got into a little bit with discussions about servants and the family, but it's something that I hope that we also learn more about as we go through the books. Yeah, completely. I think that's a wonderful question and it gets into a lot of like the power dynamics in this world that we're all very new, new to as a group. So, you know, we'll keep talking about this more as we go, um, even as we talked about it today. And, you know, just keep these questions coming. We love it. We do. We read every single message. We do our best to get back to everybody as fast as we can. And particularly with this topic, we're really looking at layers of imperialism and different periods of colonization. And so this one is is different in the sense that the iconography, the myths of the American Revolution, are so much more prominent where we're from. And as listener Heather alludes to, this might be material that even if you read it as a kid, it's going to feel really different when we talk about it in 2019. So we'll keep getting into the different relationships happening here. There is a history of Spanish colonization. There's the encroachment of United States settler colonists. There's also fighting between different indigenous groups and the Spanish. So it's not like this one neat thing to talk about. Also, I just want to put out there, we put out a call for folks to respond to or think about American girl and queerness. You know, is there American girl that reminds you of queer culture or embodies queer culture to you? And we've gotten some great calls and we're going to share them in an upcoming bonus episode. But I want to share our voicemail number so that you can call and leave us a message with your thoughts. And they can also just be thoughts about the show, about the series, whatever you want. We've also gotten some great stuff about Felicity that we're going to share on a different episode. Our number is 860-455-4091. Again, that's 865-455-4091. We don't pick up also when you're calling. It's truly a voice. Yeah. Don't stress out. You're not going to talk to us. Just leave us a message. We'll check it out later. And, you know, we would love to do a mailbag episode. So feel free to call us up with any questions you have for us and we might play it on the show and then answer it. So they can be questions about the show, about us, whatever you want. We're open to it um, unless we're not. If you've if you've gotten greater leads on Ashanti or any other topic that we've oh brought God, up previously, please. we love that. We love that. Wow. 
or even Tupac's murder. I know it's tangentially related at best, but I'm still interested. If you think it's tangential, you're kidding yourself. (laughs) Was it Tia Dolores? Was it Val? Was it a hologram? Was it a hologram of of Selena? Oh, my God. Wow. What a ride it's been. Mary, if people have hot takes about Ann Lister... Eleanor Roosevelt, literally any one of the 19 utopias that we talk about, the Mennonites, whatever it is, where should people find you? Please reach out to me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. You can find me on Twitter at Allison Horrocks. I'm available there. You can also reach out to us on our Twitter account. We love to hear and see from you there. Uh, We are a girl's pod on Twitter. Um, You can find us on Instagram at American girls podcast, and you can drop us a line on email. We do love to get emails at American girls pod at gmail.com. Yes. So many different places to contact us. We love your fierce feedback on literally anything. We love the messages we get from people. They make me laugh so hard. And, you know, I just love like this community that's developing here is really fun to be a part of. So thank you so much for listening. And also thanks to everyone who's been reviewing us on iTunes and telling their friends and helping people hear about our show. It's huge. It's huge. We absolutely appreciate when you tell other folks and you share information. And those reviews are a big help. So thank you. All right. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you. 